Welcome to the Emmaus Fellowship Teaching Podcast. We trust you find this encouraging. Emmaus Fellowship is located at 205 North Pine Street in Woodland Park, Colorado. Our phone number is 719-687-6061. We trust you find this encouraging as you pour over God's Word with us. Gave me a voice and a song Taught me how to sing So here's what I want to do. Before I read this out of James 4, I want to ask you, like, if you had a pencil and a piece of paper or a pen or just on your phone or just think, think of phrases or a word that kind of highlights, write down a single word or short phrases that stand out to you when I read this passage because I kind of want to just have a little popcorn afterwards, like pop it out. Like, what, what are you hearing in this? Like, Word or phrase. I don't need a sermonette. I, if you want to give one, I'll step aside. I mean, but I'm just saying, <laughs> I would rather just hear uh, what you are kind of like, what's popping up for you? So this is James 4, verse 4 through 6. Here we go. You have become spiritual adulterers who are having an affair, an ungodly relationship with the world. Don't you know that flirting with the world's values places you at odds with God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes God himself, makes himself God's enemy. Does the scripture mean nothing to you that says the spirit that God breathed into your hearts is a jealous lover who intensely desires to have more and more of us? But he continues to pour out more and more grace upon us, for it says God resists when you are proud, but continually pours out grace when you are humble. That's it. I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray. There's some heavy stuff in this, and I want, uh, I want the spirit of truth to be speaking to us. And so, Jesus, again, we just thank you for being here with us. And we thank you for your spirit that is known as the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth and the spirit of revelation who reveals to us the things that are mysterious to us, but you choose to reveal them to us. And we acknowledge that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and the human heart has not imagined all that you have for us, but the spirit of truth reveals it to us. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that we don't know it all, We acknowledge that what we know might be subject to an upgrade. But Lord, we are asking for your spirit to speak to us and lead us into all truth. In your name, Christ, amen. So, what do you hear? You know, I'm not going to unpack every single line, every single word. We're going to do some overarching concept here, but it's going to be important for us to know that... um, that we can see things differently. Like, I've read this passage a few times in my life, and every time I've read it, I've, you know, you experience that, right, when you read the Bible? Something new kind of pops up. So um, I'm open to that. Uh, one of the things I wanted to share with you before I jump too deep into this <clears throat> is that 
um, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. Uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you guys remember the 90s? They were awesome. Um, yeah, so I was a, a chaplain. I was working in Woodland Park here as a youth pastor, and I was invited by, um, what was his name? Larry Pombianco. He invited me to be a chaplain at a big music festival that was happening uh, just south of Denver. And it was like all the rage, you know? It was like bands like Five Iron Frenzy and Supertones and P.O.D. And you guys remember some of these bands? Okay, turn it up, you know? And there were like stages, and, and I was praying for all of these different bands, and uh, I was able to speak to the crowd and everything like that. And there was this uh, booth it was kind of like one of those pop-up little uh, booths that someone had put up, and they had a banner that was over the booth, and, and it was basically an invitation to come and have conversation and receive prayer, that sort of thing. And when I came back, I was kind of impressed with that banner to the point where, at one point, Melanie was going to offer prayers right outside here in the lawn. You remember that, Mel? When the farmer's market was happening? you and some friends, you were like, let's just set up a pop-up, and then we'll just have people come up and pray if they want. We'll pray for them. You remember that? Do you remember the banner? I got it right here. So this was the banner. So I liked it so much, I made one, and I swiped their good idea. Now, we're going to hold it up, and I want you to, I don't know if you guys can see it, <clears throat> okay? And I want you to see it. I don't know if you can see it, Cam. You probably have seen it. You guys see it over here? Okay, so what does this say? God is nowhere. God is now here. God is nowhere. It actually says both, right? So this was like the, the, the beginning of a few arguments. What do you mean God's nowhere, you know? <laughs> um, and it kind of reminded me of, well, it kind of reminded me of a song that I heard from one of my favorite Canadian folk singers I've been listening to since the early 80s, uh, Bruce Coburn. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and here's a line out of one of, his, one of my favorite songs of his. Um, it says, Little round planet in a big universe. Sometimes it looks blessed. Sometimes it looks cursed. Depends on what you look at, obviously. But even more, it depends on the way that you see. So... I would say that there are probably elements of truth in everything that you've relayed to me here about what you've seen in James 4, verses 4 through 6. Of course, it's in the Scripture. And there might be a different way of seeing it. I don't know. I know for me, for many, many, many years of my Christian walk, when I would read something out of like James 4, verse 4 through 6, I would get hammered with a sense of, I'm not doing enough, I'm not good enough. So that voice of diminishment. So it's a filter that I had. Now, this all predates even my Christian journey. Like, this all, like that filter got established years before I really started reading the Bible. I mean, it was just that kind of that atmosphere, that sense of like, you're not doing enough, and what you're doing isn't good enough, and so on and so on and so on. And I, I think that performance sort of oriented, like, I don't know, it's just, it's invasive, right? It's part of our world's culture. It's definitely part of American culture, um, where there's such a, 
such an emphasis and such a value for efficiency and, you know, high performance and you're always moving up to the left or, yeah, upward to the right, whatever. Yeah, and, and it's always that upward trajectory towards the mark of the high calling. We would even grab scripture and support that notion. And it makes no room for the seasons of our life where we hit some glorious season in our life and then all of a sudden we're like, ah, free fall into a season of dormancy, new fruitfulness and discovery, and then a new season of glory. Actually, you know, I kind of like how that works because we see it all the time every year as the earth moves through its cycles. And there's like a place for that because isn't the whole thing about the Christian message, the journey, the, the, the gospel is about, yeah, we can experience the death of things. And we can find ourselves staring into the abyss. And I, I would just say that the winter time, even though I really love summer, um, it's a time for root work. You know, it's a deepening of the roots. And then we come into a new season of fruitfulness. And then, you know, just it just it's a flow. It's like, but there's no room for that in this kind of culture where you're always, you know. So anyway, I always felt like I was missing it, missing the mark. And maybe that's how you read these kind of passages to this day. No shame on you. I'm just like, I was there. I mean, I get it. And so, um, so I'm just saying that you wouldn't be wrong. Um, but, but let's just look at this here. You wouldn't be wrong if you grabbed certain parts of this passage of Scripture that felt heavy for you and felt like a challenge for you. Let me just really emphasize that. I think that, have, I, I misspoke here. I think that having that sort of attitude of the heart where you're always striving to attain some new level of relationship with God so that you can be blessed, I believe that's wrong. All right, so that being said, we all have paradigms and filters, and we see our relationship with God through those lenses. We view ourselves through those lenses. We see others through those lenses. And, um, and maybe the relationship with the world is what really rose up for you, like this ungodly relationship with the world. Maybe that was emphasized for you as I read that the first time. So in that, you wouldn't be wrong, but let's take a, a few minutes here to just look at that. I really believe that James is bringing a heavy challenge, a real needed challenge, and a very timely challenge, not only to his originally intended audience, but to us. So let's look at what it means, actually, when we read the word world in the passage of Scripture here, what does that really mean? And so the Greek word for that is cosmos, which literally means something ordered or an ordered system. Okay? Now, I'm going to jump pretty deep into Scripture because I could, I could be opinionated and share my opinions here, but I would rather draw from the larger context of the Scripture to help us define what it means, this word world. We good with that? Can we go there? All right. So I believe that there are at least three different meanings for the word world in the New Testament as we read it. And the first one is the planet itself, the earth, the whole world. And this is what John 1.10, um, it says that Jesus was in the world and the world was made by him. Okay, so I'm just going to draw scripture out of 
out of the, you know, the Bible and bring it to you instead of my opinions, okay? Can I do that? So there is a world that is referred to here, but it's primarily the world that Jesus made, the earth. In fact, in Mark 16, 15, Jesus tells us to go into all the world. And he's, it's probably multifaceted, but he's definitely saying, get out of your zip code, you know? All right, so there's that. The second way that the world, the world is used in the scripture here is actually twofold. And it's about the inhabitants of the earth, people. So you got the earth itself, that's the world. And you got the people and um, the inhabitants of the world. So the first one, A, the inhabitants of the world, John 3.16. I love this verse. Many of us know this verse. For God so loved, what? The world. That he gave his only son, that whosoever, the people within, like, the world, that if anybody uh, were to believe in him, they would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, can we go on into verse 17 here? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So he's speaking about the inhabitants of the earth as the world, the people, and Jesus did not come to condemn the people. He did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we're seeing here that on the planet, it's full of people, we know this, of course, it's important for us to catch God's attitude towards the people of the world. He loves us. He loves the world. And he did not come to condemn the world, but that through Jesus, the world might be saved through him. So we have to know that at the heart of this is not only love, but also a rescue. Because point B here of the inhabitants of the world, of the earth as the world, it's an extension of this that leads to the idea of a, of a race of men, not race as in color, creed, all that, but a race of men alienated from God, and as a result, they're hostile to the cause of Christ. So John 14, 16 through 17 I will ask the Father, this is Jesus talking, and he says, and he will give you another advocate to help you, speaking of the Holy Spirit here, and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, who we've been praying would help us. And then it goes on to say this in John 14, 17, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So there's a, a category of human beings who are hostile to God. So the world is both the men and women on the planet um, who are just walking about. And then also it starts to narrow it down to, um, to folks who are like not keen on the message of Jesus, not keen on the rescue, not keen on the idea that God is... Uh, with us and for us and moving in a way that is deeply personal. In John 15, 18, it says this, if the world, again, speaking of the inhabitants of the world who are hostile towards God, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
So this is where it starts to blend. Because now we're going to move into the third portion here where there's a third use for the word world in the scripture. And it's where we find the word cosmos, this ordered system. And it actually has a couple of different references here. The first one is from a material standpoint, uh, this would be the affairs of the world. It could include the riches of the world. It can include the endowments, the advantages, the pleasures, etc., etc., and that may actually be something that's incredibly enticing to us as human beings. And the, the systems of the world with the material um, appealment of like the things of the, the world, they are definitely an enticement for us away from God. And they can be obstacles for us towards the cause of Christ. So now we're starting to get into this broader sort of... Um, dynamic systems of the world that many of us who have been around in the church for a lot of years, we talk about the world probably more from this vantage point, probably more from the vantage point of not only the, the, um, the riches and the enticements and the different things that can allure us away from a relationship with God and be obstacles for us to entering into relationship with Christ. It goes on here in 1 John Uh, 2.15, where it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Is is it telling us, is John telling us, don't love people? No, he's not saying that at all. This This is why it's important for me to make these distinctions for us, okay? Because God loves people. God loves the world. What God does not love, and what is in enmity with God, are systems of the world um, that are actually like, for example, referenced here in Matthew 16, uh, 26. What good will it be if someone were to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? So there's a dynamic of a world system that actually is in complete opposite, like it's the Antichrist in that truest sense where it is actually forfeiting your soul. There is something about the world system that is bringing destruction, decay, uh, forfeiture of who you are as a human being that occurs when we have relationship and love for the world in that context of the system of the world. We're going deeper, right? So the use of cosmos here doesn't just apply to material things, but it also applies to abstract things that are both spiritual and touch morality. And so we're going into the deep end. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So now it's starting to say that it's not just the material dynamics in the affairs of the world, but it starts to move into a spiritual dynamic. And this is where maybe uh, we don't have the lens. Like maybe Maybe we've not grown up with a spiritual worldview. Maybe we've not understood that there's a spiritual dynamic that influences human beings. I had a conversation with a friend the other day, and they were, they were struggling with the idea of evil because they actually do not want to ascribe, ascribe evil to a human being. And so I asked them the big question. I was like, well, do you think evil would exist on the planet if human beings did not live here? Like, if we were not here, would there still be evil? Mindbender, and it was like, 
Okay, so, so this is where we start to move into a more spiritual worldview that not all evil that we see is the direct result of human beings. Now, it is definitely, definitely the result of human beings acting poorly, right? Um, but what is influencing that? There's a deeper story that's going on. And so, like I said here in 1 Corinthians 2.12, we do not receive a spirit of the world, but the spirit from God. In 1 Corinthians 3.19, um, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. So there's, there's a spiritual dynamic that starts to bring with it certain philosophical ideas and concepts and, um, yeah, patterns of thinking that actually, in contrast with God, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. The, the catch-22 here is that if, if you happen to be one of those inhabitants of the earth that fall into that category of hostile to God, the wisdom of God is foolishness. So you start to see that uh, it's at odds. You know, there's this conflict that's happening. So let's jump into the mind of, um, of this spirituality influenced and motivated by the world cosmos, okay, the world system. The Apostle John writes repeatedly of the prince of this world. That's a phrase that the Apostle John in his writings refers to the prince of this world. So now we're starting to go into like, oh, there's an ordered system to this. Yeah, it may seem very chaotic, but there's actually order to this and there's protocol to this. And so in his letter, John describes this prince of the world um, it says that he, um, it, it refers to him as he that is in the world. And then in First um, John 5:19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world, the spiritual ordered system, is under the control of the evil one. So that's First John 5:19. Again, not my opinions, my beliefs, based on what I'm reading in Scripture. That, that we are children of God, and we live in this world system. We live in this dynamic world system that is under the control of the evil one. Now, this is where some of those like, phrases like, yes, we are in the world, but not of the world, start to really make sense to us. Because while we are in this world that has the prince of, you know, it's the evil one, and the Greek word here that describes the prince of this world as cosmos creator. That sounds really, ah, cosmos creator. Well, actually, what it means is world ruler. That's the Greek word, and it only appears once in the scripture, and it's actually in a plural tense, and it's identifying a hierarchy of order, and it's the hierarchy of the rule of the prince of the world, and it's found in, you guys know where it is? Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the cosmos creators, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, we're getting a big picture here, right? The ordered world that James is referring to is governed behind the scenes by a ruler, and his name is Satan. 
Now, the thing about the word Satan is actually like a positional authority. It's like the Satan, which is, sorry if you're a defense, no, sorry if you're a prosecuting attorney, but that's actually what it means. The Satan is the prosecuting attorney in the heavens. And that's why it's referred to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. So all these dynamics are deep. They're, they mean something to us because it's, it really does tie to the inhabitants of the world. It affects us. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says this, that the little g God of this world, the cosmos kretan, um, the prince of the world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So human beings can be under the influence of the, the prince of darkness, the ruler of this world. And that's what re is referred to in the scripture as a veil being over the eyes of their heart or over their hearts. And let's not create like an us versus them thing. Like all of us were in that position. There was not a single one of us in this room that at some point in our life, we were not blinded. So we, just like the rest of the inhabitants of the world, were very much victimized. So can we just point that out? Because I do not hate the world as the inhabitants of the world. I do not hate people. We are not called to hate anyone, even if we would identify them as them <laughs> and we as us. Okay? Because every single human being on the planet is under the influence of this. And so this is really important for us as we find our way through this so that we disengage and uncouple our relationship with the systems of the world without uncoupling our hearts from the people that are in the world. Okay? All right. So this is why we're encouraged in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophies or empty deceptions according to the traditions of man, according to the elemental principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So this is all being spoken to people who are like professing belief in Christ. So we are all susceptible then to having our eyes blinded, to having our hearts blinded, to the deeper message of the gospel of Jesus the deeper truth of our relationship with him. We are all susceptible. So as we put a wrap on this portion of the message here, let's remember John 3.17, God, that Jesus did not come to condemn the inhabitants of the world, but rather the world ruler, okay? Rather, he came to condemn the cosmos creator, all right? So after his resurrection, Jesus declares in John 16, 11, that the prince of the world now stands condemned. We're turning a corner. It's really important. And while the rule and reign of Jesus Christ has been established, we are still in the process of the restoration of all things. So yes, James is challenging us. And he's really challenging his audience here. It, we have to remember who the original audience was, right? Who was the, the intended hearers of this letter that is considered to be the first letter written to the church, even before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? 
and it happened probably 40 years after Christ's ascension that this letter was written. Up to that point, it was all very um, like oral tradition, and, and now James is writing to these folks. And remember that these are Jewish refugees who have been displaced because of persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. These people have been displaced. They're refugees. Their home is no longer their home. The, the place they grew up in is no longer their place. Some of their family members have been killed because of their faith in Christ. These are a traumatized people. These are a people who have memory now of being persecuted for their faith and actually having to dis- be displaced. So in a very real sense, they were refugees. And we have to remember that as refugees, they're still walking in faith. They're still meeting together and forming communities of faith, whether that's in their homes, usually in their homes, um, or if they were meeting in some common space, they were worshiping Jesus. So it seems a bit harsh to me (laughs) that James would criticize their spiritual lives in light of the fact that many of them have had to endure such hardship, and yet he finds it important to do so. They've endured loss, displacement, physical and emotional trauma. And what James is challenging, we could call, at least I'm going to call it this this morning, a spiritual Stockholm syndrome. You guys remember um, hearing the story about this bank robbery that happened in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973. And it was a six-day standoff with police And many of the captive bank employees actually became sympathetic towards the bank robbers, even to the point where after they were set free, some of the bank employees refused to testify against the bank robbers in court, and some of them even raised money for their defense. And this happens actually all the time. And it's not just in like a hostage situation or in a kidnapping situation, um, it actually happens in abusive situations. And it's referred to as a Stockholm Syndrome, and it's a coping mechanism, it's really a coping mechanism um, to, an abuse, to an abusive situation or a captive situation. People develop positive feelings towards their captors or abusers over time. We, too, are susceptible to this syndrome. If we live in a world that is traumatizing to us, that is fraught with evil, that has actually captivated us in some way, shape, or form because of its enticements, then you have to know that we run the same risk of developing coping mechanisms that we would actually align ourselves and have certain affinities towards our captors. The system of this world is both traumatizing and enticing. Simultaneously, right? And so what I'd like to do now is I'd like to actually read, kind of like holding this banner up, and then we were like, God is now here, God is nowhere. Like I read James 4, 4 through 6, and you heard it one way. I want to read it again, and let's see if something else pops up. You've become spiritual adulterers that are having an affair, an ungodly relationship, or an unholy relationship with the world. Don't you know that flirting with the world's values places you at odds with God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Does the scripture mean nothing to you that says the spirit that God breathed into your hearts 
as a jealous lover who intensely desires to have more and more of us. But he continues to pour out more and more grace upon us, for it says God resists you when you are proud, and he continually pours out grace when you are humble. I want to just highlight one phrase. God is a jealous lover who intensely desires to have all of you. It kind of gets hidden in here. But can we glance a little bit differently at this and say that this is actually about an invitation into intimacy with God? That this is about a rescue? If a relationship with the world would forfeit our souls, it only makes sense then that what we're being invited into is not only the restoration of our souls, but abundant life. Okay, so... I met my new friends here. You were, you've been in Kansas City for a while. In fact, you went to the same church that Brian Fenimore went to. We, we all love Brian Fenimore. He comes here once a month and has been speaking here at this church once a month for the last 17 years. It's the same church that I went to. Now, we never met because you, you came right as we were leaving because we left in 96 and moved here and started working here at this church. The reason why I'm bringing up this season of the mid-90s, moving into the later 90s, um, it was when I had a spiritual awakening. And like seeing the sign differently for the first time, I began to grow in my understanding and my awareness of what we call the bridal paradigm with Christ. And we were in Kansas City, and the pastor there at the church Metro Vineyard was um, Mike Bickle. And Mike Bickle is still in leadership there, and he, um, he actually started, him and his crew started the International House of Prayer, where there has been um, 24-hour prayer and worship happening there. Pro- I don't know how long it's been. Anybody know how long it's been? Like 25 years? It's a big deal. If you ever met Mike... He's, um, he's stout and um, intense. And he melts like putty when he starts to talk about being the bride of Christ. And it blew my mind when I, when I sat there weak. It was almost like a broken record, but I needed it. Like, I needed to hear. I needed that to start to uncouple even those old filters of how I was seeing God and how I was seeing myself and how I was seeing other people, I needed to connect with the reality that Christ loves people so much. It's more than um, ideals and concepts. It moves into the place of intimacy that is only on display in the marriage of a husband and a wife on the planet. It's that committed. It's that intense. There's a oneness. It's what, you know, Paul refers to in Ephesians as this mystery where, you know, husband and wife come together and they're married and they are a picture of Christ and his people. That there's this invitation into intimacy I mean, I like to look at this passage in James 4, 4 through 6, with this lens. I I know the other lens is important. 
But it's not the heart of it. It's not just so that we would become good little soldiers and engage all the spiritual warfare all the time. That's all for the sake of creating space so that we can have this intimate relationship with Jesus as our lover. That's the invitation here. Listen to Song of Songs. I mean, that was one thing that Mike Bickle just, man, Song of Solomon. And I don't know if you've read that lately. Um, It's a little steamy at places. It's kind of like, wow, okay, so this is kind of like for husbands and wives. Actually, if you draw back and start to apply the bridal paradigm, you start to recognize that it's about Christ and you. That it's about the way that Jesus loves you and wants to invite you into intimacy with him in such a way that your hearts are united and that you're captivated by each other. So listen to Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. I just want to just acknowledge that um, this is the invitation. And this is what James is really pointing us to. And so over the next couple of times that I share, we're actually going to kind of have that woven together. Like there is a spiritual dynamic here where we have to fight to keep ourselves from being allured away. We have to acknowledge any place in our heart where we have kind of like succumbed to that uh, Stockholm Syndrome, where we've had a certain affection and affiliation to the very thing that's been traumatizing and captivating us, apart from Jesus. And James and I are saying, look, Let's wake our eyes up, you know, to see that because we're missing out if we don't acknowledge that that's a potential and we don't address it. And so this is what I wanted to offer to you today. I know that we've jumped into some deep waters here. At the end of the day, regardless of whether you feel like you've been adulterous spiritually or not, at the core of this is an invitation And hear what he says. God chooses to pour out his grace to any of us who humble ourselves. And we we have to remember that as we acknowledge and even confess that this is something that's going on in our life, like we have this flirtatious relationship with the world, that Jesus is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news. Because he loves you. And so with that, my friends, God is now here. So friends, um, I just want to bless you as you take time this week to allow the Holy Spirit to just really take some inventory You know, and and like David said when he prayed, he's like, search me, O God. Shine your light into any area of my soul where I have a relationship with the world that is hindering me from deeper intimacy with you. 
And I just want to bless you as you go on that journey with the Lord uh, that you are, you're okay. You're going to be okay. That you do not uh, need to let the enemy of your soul condemn you. As you open yourself to allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you, to point out things, that's one thing. But I want to just pray right now for your protection that the enemy of your soul would not be able to hound you and diminish you that this journey and this process would be full of hope. That you would remember that as you humble yourself in this, that the Lord's grace is being poured out into your life. And he's not only forgiving you, but he is cleansing you. He is bringing a renewal to those areas of your soul that have been affected by the prince of this world. And so, Jesus, I pray that the work of reclamation, like reclaiming places of our heart that have been impacted and under the influence of any system of this fallen world, I pray, Jesus, that you would bring such grace to that place, such healing to that place, such wholeness to that place. And so I pray in the name of Jesus, as I began our time together, for the blood of Christ to be a wall of separation between you and any foul spirit. And I pray that you would have an open heaven over your life any time you purpose in your heart this week to set time aside to meet with Jesus. And I pray that you would have visionary experiences and encounters and you would experience the love of Jesus, that you would encounter his grace for you and his affections towards you. And I pray that this would be rich and so encouraging to your hearts that any time you purpose in your heart to set time aside, you would be met with love. And so I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. And I seal it by his Holy Spirit. Amen. It's our joy to offer these podcasts. We sure hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, any prayer requests, feel free to drop us a line at Fellowship at iCloud.com. If you're curious about ways you can be more deeply involved in this community, visit our website at EmmausFellowship.org and be sure to like our Facebook page.